Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and nonfiction writer. Today on the pod, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that examines what we've been thinking about in the world of romance. This week, we discuss King Charles's upcoming coronation and the scandalous invitations and non-invitations that have leaked into the news. We end up discussing the big question, what are the pros and cons of keeping your exes in your life? Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we'll be talking about Breathless, a Buddha Souf. Film 101 students, listen up. This is your sexy spark notes as we get into everything from the cinematography to how you can pretend to have watched it without actually having to watch it. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters or entities from our main love story. Those cahiers du cinéma are truly in demand this week. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. This week was my turn, and I'll tell you guys, it's my favorite kind, which means that I got to go digging through the absolute trash of British tabloids. Yes! So, (laughs) I am so excited to discuss this with you. You guys, what's happening on May 6th? I believe it's the coronation. It is the coronation. I was going to say the same thing, but Chris got me. <laughs> he beat me to it. I like that's, obviously. Uh, I that's ten points to me. Okay, Gryffindor. <laughs> yeah, you're such you're such a Gryffindor. We're Ravenclaws. We're Ravenclaws. We've taken the tests. I have taken the test. I am a hundred percent Ravenclaw. I don't want to brag. I took the test. I got ninety eight percent Gryffindor and two percent Slytherin. <laughs> You got the moral binary of Harry Potter. (laughs) With that in mind, we're going deep into England for this uh, week in love. So, Chris, do you know what scandalous figure is invited to the coronation? Meghan Markle? Prince Harry. Probably not. Uh, Probably not and probably. Um, I mean, it's not Prince Andrew. Uh, Probably Prince Andrew. Is he? Actually, is he invited? Do you know? We're going to get there. Okay. Uh, I think that the scandalous figure is... Camilla Parker Bowles' ex-husband. Correct. Look who's been up on his tabloids. 20 points to Gryffindor. To be fair, listeners, Chris has just spent the last week with a bunch of Brits. So (laughs) he's been cheating. We've been talking about the coronation nonstop. That's all you guys do, right? (laughs) Coronation (laughs) and etiquette. That's what I've understood. (laughs) So this was all over. The mirror, the independent, the trashier links that I don't even know. Because the pop-up ads kept their browser name. There are no letters in the URL. It's all numbers and hyphens. (laughs) Yep, I'm very familiar. But I did learn the one secret that doctors don't want me to know. No, <laughs> I can't tell you though. So yes, the Queen's former husband will be front and center of the congregation to watch his first wife be crowned next to King Charles. And I'm not going to lie, when I first read this sentence, I was like, 
they, they're bringing Prince Philip back. Zombie Prince <laughs> Philip is coming to. When you said the queen, yeah. I, I, I mean, poor Camilla. Well, no, not poor Camilla. We read Spare. We know it's not yeah. poor Camilla. <laughs> we listened to we slash know. read Spare. We know. But yeah, to me, the queen now, it, it, there's no other the queen. The reason that he's been making headlines, all of these headlines say, has been, you know, who's dated Princess Anne. Dated Princess Anne at least 30 years ago. <laughs> Some of the fanciest papers say the Princess Royal. I would like you to know that's Princess Anne. <laughs> now, he's deeply involved in the royal family in kind of weird ways, other than the fact that he dated the sister of the guy that his wife was cheating on him with. Oh my God, these commas. I know. I know. No commas in that sentence. And these commoners. I, that's what I thought you said there. That's uh, where my... That's my accent. It's, it's, I'm getting more British as we go. Oh my no. God, these commoners. These commoners and these com with their commas. No commoners here, you guys. At least in this story. In this room, yes. Not even Oxford commoners. <laughs> Sometimes you need one. Uh, I'm sorry. Mute, mute while we murder Chris. <laughs> okay, well, Andrew Parker Bowles used to play polo on the same team, team as Charles. And the famous quote about him was uh, done by a royal biographer who wrote, It is said that an English gentleman will always lay down his wife for his country. And that was certainly true in the case of Andrew Parker Bowles. Okay, never mind. That's hot. <laughs> I'm back on top. So is Andrew. <laughs> Andrew Parker Bowles. There is some disgusting news coverage of this topic. The best kind of news coverage. Absolutely. At least if you're a Brit. Here's a quote. Friends of the 83-year-old said he's, quote, a bit of a rogue. 83? Yeah. 83 and a bit of a rogue shouldn't be in the same sentence. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be ageist, but I feel a way about this. Yeah. I mean, at that age, it just means you've got wandering hands. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's exactly it. Camilla's close friend, the Marchioness of Lansdowne, also a close friend of mine, said... Everyone loves Andrew, who's a real charmer, but he's always terribly misbehaving. Which, you couldn't sound more like a Nancy Mitford character if Nancy Mitford wrote you. And then, this weirder quote, weirdest. A friend of the Parker Bowles family said of Andrew and Camilla, They are joined at the hip. He arranges so much for her. They have lunch together the whole time. My, my question mark? He's right in there. He was always, and still is, Camilla's co-conspirator. Co-conspirator? Yeah, yeah. They're having lunch the whole time that what? What? Thank you. <laughs> There's a lot of ellipses here. I want to unpack that statement for approximately six hours. I, I don't, I'm so sorry. We're not going to have another podcast. Like, we have to talk about this. This is the full podcast. Yeah. We're going to have lunch the whole time. What does that mean? Imagine if I texted you. Hey, Chris, um, let's have lunch the whole time. <laughs> Full stop. What would you do? How would you respond? What would you expect? I think lunch fetish. That's what I think. Um, nom, 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 baguette sandwich. Nom, 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 nom. <laughs> baguette on um, baguette on um, baguette. Like, like in cartoons when it's like sausage links that are all linked, except mine is just like sandwich upon sandwich upon sandwich. I know, except that the fact that our minds immediately went to baguettes and sausages. I mean, I, I, my mind went to, you know, restaurant opening hours in Paris. And I'm thinking lunch the whole time. What? So from 12.30 to 2.30, right? <laughs> so I'm hanging out with you until about 4 p.m.? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not even, no, not even that. 2.30 and we, it's, it's right. the cutoff. We, we, we're just, we're doing two services. That's that's what we're doing. Maybe three at a push and a kind of like a, a place where they really turn people over. And we're like, fuck you to the waiting <laughs> staff. <laughs> we're having lunch the whole time. 
To be fair, Andrew Parker Bowles has had a long history with the royal family beyond the affair Mm -hmm. and beyond dating the affairy's sister. In 1953, he was involved in the coronation of the late queen as a page. And his grandchildren are playing an important role. They're carrying the train of Camilla's robes. The children's name, by the way. Can you guess what the grandchildren's names are of Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles? Priscilla? No, they're boys. Oh, sir. Aloysius? No. Percy? No. Ooh, that was a good guess. It is a good guess. All of these are great guesses. They're not as fun as you'd think, but they are very typical. Freddie, Gus, and Louie. Aw. They sound like little ducks. Yeah. Gus Gus from Cinderella? Gus Gus. Gus, right. Gus we love you. You shouldn't be listening to this. Go to bed. Um, <laughs> Go so address. <laughs> so it makes sense that, you know, Andrew's invited. All is forgiven. But what scandalous figure is not invited? Well, Harry's definitely going to be there. I read that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I know. I mean, I know this because uh, it came up earlier. Prince Andrew. I don't know about Prince Andrew. They're not saying whether he's invited or not. Which, can I just say, it is ridiculous the way the royal family will not just disavow Prince Andrew. They're very much at this point like, oh, he makes us a little uncomfortable. <laughs> it's a... He's a rogue. <laughs> Give us a hint. Do you think we get it with a hint? Who's not invited? Like the controversial figure? Yeah, the hint is Prince Andrew. <gasps> Fergie! Yeah. Oh. Fergie has not been invited. Well. <laughs> right. She is close with her ex-husband. Her ex-husband is disgraced for rightful reasons involving Jeffrey Epstein. And children's author Fergie cannot attend, perhaps. I loved Budgie the Little Helicopter when I was growing up. Doesn't. Is that a real title? That's what she wrote. Yeah, she wrote Budgie. It's kind of like Thomas the Tank Engine, but for helicopters. There we go. Well, upscale. This actually is the way that one of these papers categorized her. They said, children's book author. (laughs) It's my byline. You're correct. Yeah, I wrote it. It's not a big deal. On Good Morning Britain the other day, she said, I am divorced and I really loved being divorced to my ex-husband, not from my ex-husband. It's quite a differentiate. So I'm hoping that this was the newspaper transcribing and not what she said. But it does sound like an upper-class person who's heard some words, but doesn't exactly know what they mean. It really does sound, feel like literally there was a redactor pen. And as she was speaking, some of the words kind of got mixed up. She then went on to say, it's a state occasion and being divorced. I don't think you can have it both ways. What about Andrew Parker Bowles, Fergie? So the Andrews are really the center of this scandal. As they should be. I wanted to pop out for a second and say, what do you guys think are the pros of keeping your exes in your lives? If you've done so, I'd never have. I like to burn a fucking bridge to the ground. Right. I don't see any pros. I don't know if, Chris, you want to take the lead here, but I also hold grudges famously. Well, I mean, I, I think it, there can de- there can definitely be some pros. To, I mean, depending on the course of the relationship and if it was the reason why it fell apart. And often... But- what if the reason that it fell apart is because you cheated with Prince Charles? King Charles. Only <laughs> <laughs> um, that- serious answers, Chris, please. In that generalizable situation. <laughs> in that situation... I don't know. I guess but- in this case, I can see you have kids... That's like the big reason for me would be right. if you have kids. But I think, okay, so on on the one hand, I do always think that it, it is an interesting thing like with relationships that, you know, you're closer to this particular person than you are to anybody else in the world. And then when you break up, 
often you're suddenly kind of like, you know, sorry, and you're closer to them, presumably because you really like them as well as loving them. And then when you break up, it's this rupture and then you never see them again. And and some in some ways that doesn't make a lot of sense because like if, you know, you, you should, there's no reason why you would stop liking them necessarily. I think also there's a, there's a time dimension here as well. Mm-hmm. I can imagine after like 20 something years, for example, Someone who's your ex, they, as you were saying, Chris, they've known you so well, you've known them so well. To separate them from your life and how you lead it is kind of separating something really important from how you grew up, right? Like how you developed. So I do think that, do I want to keep the ex from a couple of years ago? Absolutely the fuck not. But do I want to keep the ex from 37 years ago? Yeah, I want to be reminded. But I think about that with old friends as well, that there's something wonderful about knowing someone who's seen you grow up and who's grown up with you and who can kind of reflect back on you. Remember you did this? Remember you did that? Like, it's really easy, I think, for us to lose our dimensions. And so I can kind of see that in a very theoretical, you know, when I'm 37 kind of way. Yeah, not for any of my exes, but I like this for other people. Right. I love other people's exes. Because I've always thought, too, like, what if you dated somebody straight throughout college and you, like, then all of your college memories would be tied up with that person. And it's like, and then if you were bitter later or, like, angry or whatever it's like that whole period of your life which is so formative would become like inextricable from that person and then that person's just gone yeah you know it's it's but it's strange to kind of look at friendship as uh like almost like a step down from a relationship right and it's something i really hate yeah i really do too especially for women like i think that we are well, I should say for straight women, we're taught that the relationship that we should be the closest to is our straight male partner, yeah, a romantic partner, and I hate that. But then it's like as well, like the idea of remaining friends with your ex is that like, well, I don't want you out of my life, but I don't want you like in the one position that, you know, we're, we're presuming monogamy here, you know, that, you know, that uh, can be taken, but you can go along with everybody else, you know, like it is this weird demotion um, in essence. So I don't know if this is true, but this is the kind of thing that uh, when I heard it, I couldn't really get it out of my head, which is a friend, a very close friend of mine stated very forthrightly that it's only narcissists who remain friends with their exes. I believe it. Like, if you have to have everybody love you, you know, if you can't stand the... I'm very close to being that person, but not so much that I can't uh, hold a grudge. So that's my personality flaws. I mean, I'm kill, 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 and all the Mary fuck kills. So (laughs) if you're my ex, don't look at me in the street. (laughs) Certainly don't turn your head. I have nothing to say to you. So I guess with all of that said, you know, Rupert Campbell Black slash Andrew Parker Bowles, uh, good on you. Stop being a rogue. (laughs) <laughs> we we don't approve of this for for anybody. But also congratulations on being the least worst Andrew of the bunch. And now it's time for the love story. This week we're going to be talking about 1960s Breathless. Before we get into anything, I want to hear about your experiences with this movie the most. I watched, I've watched it twice, once alone and once in your presence and company. Thank you both. And the first time I watched it, I couldn't, I don't think I could have told you what the plot was, which might have been also because it was before I had a stronger grasp on French and it was without subtitles. So if you'd asked me for a plot summary then, I would have said, cool, French, hot, glasses, Belmondo, uh, death. And then this time around watching it, I'm like, this is a very silly movie. (laughs) 
Both are correct. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But of course, I also keep in the hot French. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, all of that still applies. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I've also seen it twice. Um, so yeah, once in your company. And then the first time, I think it would have been when I was about 17, maybe. And I went through this real kick of saying like, I need to learn more about classic cinema and be just generally more intellectual. And so I remember I rented from the blockbuster. As the intellectuals do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of these like various like Nouvelle Vague films and watch them. And yeah, and obviously this is like the first one that you go to because it's the kind of maybe the classic of Nouvelle Vague cinema. And I have to say that the first time that I watched it, I was like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't get this. Um, <laughs> I don't get why it's such a classic. It seemed pretty. Bo I mean, it's obviously there are some iconic images and shots. I thought it was pretty dull. Watching it again just, uh, just yesterday with you guys. Yeah, I would also. I would still say it seems pretty dull, but I. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought the journey was going to be different, but I'm glad it's what it was. I'm glad it was this. I'm also so excited that when kids Google Breathless Doll, we're going to now be the top hit. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can get that keyword, guys. What I think I realized, though, this time around is it's one of those films as well that although I might have only seen it once before, it's very much in the conversation. So I have definitely had uh, intellectual friends explain to me what's so great about Breathless and why it's so good. And watching it again yesterday, I did understand, I think, a bit more what it's going for. Something that I would say is that I think it, it's probably quite good at kind of achieving those things. But that being said, it seems quite dated now because... I think that a lot of people have tried to do this, like similar things, but I'll get into that later. I think it's really funny because you have a lot of, as the um, anniversaries have come up in 2010 and 2020. Well, 2020, it was March. People had other things on their mind. Right. <laughs> but in 2010, certainly a lot of like 80 year old film critics were like, it still seems just as cool and hopping as when it first came out. <laughs> like, no, I want a 20 year old to write this like, and tell me. Yeah, well, my experiences were with, <laughs> with this film. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the pod before. <laughs> oh, can we guess what it is that she's going to mention? <laughs> Did it cost $200,000? No, it cost almost nothing because it was French film school. Ooh. Where <laughs> this, this is the introductory text that you have to watch in every single class. So I've seen it uh, 16 to 20 times. <laughs> no, I haven't really. Um, my first experience with this film was in a course on New Wave Cinema that I took as a student studying abroad. And we had no classes that year because the students were all on strike. So our parents uh, were very happy that we were <laughs> abroad with nothing to do in Paris except a riot for reasons we didn't understand. You came abroad for an education and you got an education. <laughs> oh, oh, there's that. There's that Newton's mind. <laughs> and uh, we, in, but we still had to turn in essays for all of our classes. And because I hadn't, I, there was no French blockbuster. I had no way of seeing this movie. I called up my father, who's, as we know, was a filmmaker, and asked him to explain it to me. <laughs> I wrote it up based on that and the texts I'd read about it. And I believe a weird picture book that had been made, like taking you through, you know, the, yeah, the French love this movie. Um, and I got a 19 on that essay. And 
out of 20. Like, we just want to be clear. Right. <laughs> Not out of 100. For American audiences who are wondering why she's so proud of that. 19 out of 100. This is a big deal. The French professor's expression is 18 for you, 19 for me, 20 for God. So <laughs> the French professor was putting me at the level of himself. And I said, Is God short for God up, by the way? <laughs> and I said, thank you so much. I will come here for a master's in this subject that I have not even studied yet. <laughs> so uh, we'll do it that what we will. So uh, the, the plot summary of this, we're going to go into more detail, but I think it's best encapsulated by that famous Godard quote. He once said, to make a film, all you need is a girl and a gun. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much what <laughs> this is. Godard uh, approached this script. He told Francois Truffaut, roughly speaking, the subject will be the story of a boy who thinks of death and a girl who doesn't. Can we get more French than that? <sighs> so we get the opening shot of Michel, Jean-Paul Belmondo, rubbing his fingers over his lips and saying in voiceover, after all, I'm a jerk. And I'll tell you what, voiceover, cinephiles, we hate voiceover. <laughs> so we already know that something new is going on here. So Michel's at the Port of Marseille stealing a car, but he refuses to take his lovely lookout along with him on the road. So he's driving, he's getting on the country road, he won't pick up some hitchhikers, two women who he evaluates at length, deciding that they are dogs. The police are following him as he leaves the city, and he kills one of the cops on a country road. He's on the run now without money. He somehow gets back to Paris. <laughs> he goes to a nameless lady's apartment, Lilan David. He asks her for 5,000 francs. This is about $1,000 in U.S. money at the time. She offers him a tenth of that, and he refuses it, but steals from her purse anyway. <laughs> he then goes to a travel agency to find Tomachov, who's out. Uh, we assume that it's another money thing. He then goes to find Patricia Francini, Jean Seberg, the lovely American on the Champs-Élysées, where she is hawking the New York Herald Tribune. They make a date for later. Uh, leaving, he sees a potentially fatal car accident and then sees that he's in the papers as a wanted man. He goes again to get the money from Tolmachov, and Tolmachov has it, but he gives him a check. And so now Michelle has to cash this check, and it's a real hassle. Days before Venmo, you guys, who wants to live in them? That's it. So he calls his friend Baruti to cash this check. He can't reach him. The police are already on his tail, but arrive at the travel agency just as Michelle has left. Tolmachov's like trying to cover for him not that well, and then some like random lady who works there is like, oh, that guy? He just left. The police follow him into the metro. He runs out the other end. What we do learn in this movie is that holding a newspaper in front of your face makes you invisible. Yes. Notably to police. Yes. Michelle is then following Patricia later when she meets up with a journalist because she doesn't want to be just a hawker of newspapers. She wants to be a journalist herself. So the journalist gives her a book about a botched abortion. He seems to know that she may be pregnant. Uh, somehow. But she does get an assignment from him to interview a novelist the next day at Orly, the airport. Uh, Patricia goes back to her apartment to find Michelle hiding there, but she doesn't realize he's hiding from the police. 
A very long scene ensues. In the words of reviewer A.O. Scott, that long scene, almost a third of the movie's running time, (laughs) in which the two main characters laze around in a long post-coital seminar, talking about love, death, literature, and music, while the camera floats around them. I would also like to point out, this was the point in the movie last night, where Naf was just like, guys, I can't. I gotta go to bed. Gotta go to bed. Um, she, She does tell him in this scene that she thinks she's pregnant, and it might be by him. And they both seem, like, alarmingly unconcerned about this. He steals a convertible sometime in the next few days. And uh, they go to the Tribune offices, the Herald Tribune offices. Michelle's face is now everywhere. There's notices about him running on all of the LED screens. And then, as Dudley Andrew writes, Godard comes out into the open. Playing a concerned citizen, he exchanges suspicious glances with both from behind their newspapers and their sunglasses. So Godard is actually the one who comes into the scene in a Hitchcockian move and says, I don't know how you were going to find him otherwise, but as the director, I'm going to tell you, he went that away. <laughs> I see what he's doing there. And so uh, then Patricia does her press conference and she keeps trying to ask the novelist, what is your greatest ambition? And he replies to become immortal and then die. And this is what we call foreshadowing. <laughs> Michel, meanwhile, he tries to sell the convertible uh, for 800,000 francs, which is $160,000 in 1959 dollars. So uh, he should be more suspicious when the guy's like, sure, I'll pay you next week. Mm-hmm. And he is. So uh, when he tries to take the car back to find out that the man's pulled out some important wires, he finally makes a call on the garage guy's telephone finally reaches Baruti. He beats up Mansard, the guy at the garage, and takes his money anyway. With Patricia, they run, run, run to the meeting, but they miss Baruti by five minutes. So Patricia checks in again at the Herald Tribune. She's uh, wearing a great dress at this point, I think. That's important to mention. She is is wearing an iconic dress. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Photo and show notes. Uh, (laughs) And when she checks in at the Herald Tribune this time, the police come and they say, If you don't tell us, wouldn't it be so sad if something happened to your passport and your work permit? And we all know this is the worst threat an American can get in Paris. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're going to make me do bureaucracy Mm -hmm. and you're telling me that you're going to set it up to be harder than it is already. So then she leaves. There's like a bit of a chase. The police are following her. Michelle is following them. They chase her through a theater. Patricia goes out the bathroom because only women can go into women's bathrooms <laughs> in this movie. Meet up with Michelle on the other side. The two of them kind of spend some time in another theater, watching a Western, and then go out. Later, Patricia reads a paper in the car. She is less concerned at the fact that Michelle is wanted, which she seems to have twigged at this point, than that he was married. Mm-hmm. He says, but that was a long time ago. And she goes, well, okay. <laughs> so she, at this point, she is in. He seems to only realize that he was married by reading the fact that he was married in a newspaper as well. Exactly. He's like, it says that you were married. And he's like, let me see that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess I was. <laughs> He seems to realize it, but it's also just an immediate giveaway of guilt. You know, if somebody says, have you been cheating on me? The correct response is not, who told you that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) He also seems hazy on the details of why the marriage ended. He goes, she left me, or I left her. I don't remember. So I'm not sure this is deliberate. We're going to get into this later. Uh, Okay. They steal the car. They go to a cafe. They finally meet up with Baruti, who will cash the check the next day, if they make it that long. 
I love so I love in your uh, description of this movie. There's a lot of they go to a cafe, they sit in a car, they and I just thinking about like the, the similarities there with the Hemingway stuff that we've been reading. That it seems in a lot of kind of like fiction set in Paris, iconic fiction set in Paris, a huge amount of it is just about moving around various icon like the real quote should have just been all you need is a cafe and a car. They hide for the night at a friend's girlfriend's apartment. In the morning, Patricia is very much sent out by Michelle for bread and a newspaper. She calls a cop. I'm not going to say it's because she was ordered to go do his errands, but uh, (laughs) I'm not going to say it's not. She gets back to the apartment. Michelle tells her that Baruti's on his way with the money in a car, but Patricia says she's not going. She's called the police. And uh, it was all to prove to herself that she doesn't love him because now he has to go. Michelle goes out to meet Baruti and get the money, but he says he's just going to stay. And Baruti tries to give him the gun. He refuses the gun. The police arrive. Baruti throws the gun in front of Michelle on the street. Michelle picks it up. And that is one of many fatal decisions in this film, but maybe the most immediately fatal. And so uh, they shoot him once he's carrying a gun. So he runs down the street. This is actually on the Rue Champagne Première. And this is a street where Kiki de Montparnasse hung out, as did Man Ray, Marcel Duchamp, Francis Picabia, and Yves Klein. This is definitely chosen for a reason. What a palimpsest Paris is, eh? (laughs) So he's running down the street in this famous uh, faltering jog, and he dies with the police and Patricia around him. Now, uh, we're going to do a little bit of acting work for you, because as he's dying, he says, I'll play Michelle and the cop here. You play Patricia. Okay. You got to do the accent. Okay. So Michel says, C'est vraiment dégueulasse. Qu'est-ce qu'il a dit? Il a dit que vous êtes vraiment une dégueulasse. Qu'est-ce que c'est dégueulasse? Yeah. And so what <laughs> this translates as, thank you for the applause. Um, <laughs> thank you. So the translation is, it's really disgusting. What did he say? He says, you're really disgusting. What is disgusting? So this... This is really complicated because dégueulasse in French has the sense of nauseating a little bit. So, like, various cuts of this film, various releases of this film have had different translations of this term. Um, Scumbag is one. Puke was the one from the Criterion Collection, one that we saw Mm -hmm. the other night. And so uh, it it ends on this confusing term, which is rather appropriate. (laughs) References, this film is basically filled with references, and every single critic finds different references in there. I, instead of going through this list, I will just say Bogart is important. And um, <laughs> also, if you Google breathless influences, have a good few hours yeah. uh, spending time doing this. So at this point, the basis for this film, Godard is 30. He was a student in anthropology at the Sorbonne, but didn't go to class, which is very easy to do. Mm-hmm. They do not take attendance. Your grade is determined by like one final paper, right. as in my French cinema class experience. He was a film critic at the Cahiers du Cinéma. I don't know if you guys know about those. Yes. Yeah, very uh, influential French film journal, but, you know, making this push for more experimental cinema. That was also the one where I know that Eric Grammer used to write for them. Did Truffaut write for them as well? Indeed. All the big kind of like Nouvelle Vague directors sort of started off as film critics for that magazine. Yes, exactly. And so the lesson there is that if you want to become a director, you should just break down other directors first, and then you'll know everything you need to know. 
Seberg at this point is 22. She was found in a talent search of 18,000 American women to play Joan of Arc in St. Joan. She did two terrible reviews. She then played the lead in Bonjour Tristesse, also got terrible reviews. The alternate casting choice for that was Audrey Hepburn, which would have been a very different film. Anyway, she marries a French guy, moves to France. By 1960, she's divorced. He's terrible. She had a very hard life, but I'd like to do a whole episode on her at some point. Awesome. But for the moment, she's 22, already divorced. She says things in newspapers and journals like, I miss that casualness and friendliness of Americans, the kind that makes people smile. I also miss blue jeans, milkshakes, thick steaks, and supermarkets. Which, (laughs) Jean, same. (laughs) Belmondo was 27. He was an amateur boxer who studied at the conservatory here. He'd done some some, some shorts, some small roles, had just been the lead opposite Romy Schneider in a film, had done a Chabrol film. He, <laughs> a guy named Bosley Crowther in the New York Times Review called him hypnotically ugly. So that's a, that's a compliment, question mark. But he was uh, very worried about his career after doing this movie, as was Seberg. What, they were worried about it because they thought that it was rubbish? or Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they thought it was pure chaos, and I'll tell you why in a second. But basically, the, the whole idea for this film stemmed from a article, an article that Francois Truffaut read about a guy who'd killed a cop. And it's based on real-life Michel Portail and his American girlfriend and journalist Beverly Lynette. So this is based on a true story. Godard is working at 20th Century Fox as a press agent, where he meets producer Georges de Beauregard, and he gets hired to work on a script for the movie Pêcheur d'Ilande, but he gets bored doing it and says to the producer, hey, can I just make another film based on this, you know, my friend's stuff? And because he's a white guy in the 50s, the answer is yes. <laughs> Actually, that's a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek. Chevrolet and Truffaut agreed to give Godard the treatment they'd already written for this and wrote de Beauregard a letter from Cannes saying that they'd work on the film if Godard directed it. So they had, like, they'd already become names. They got the financing for the film. And Truffaut eventually gets credited as the original writer. Chabrol is the technical advisor. Chabrol only visited the set twice. Truffaut's biggest contribution was persuading Godard to cast Liliane David in that minor role. So they didn't really do much on the film. So with this in mind, Godard immediately just throws out the script. (laughs) It's like two of the greatest minds of the generation in cinema wrote this. And no, just no. There's something about that cockiness that I can't help but admire. Nah. (laughs) Godard is coming across as quite cocky in general in this. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's cockiness. Yes, it is. But it's also being a Sagittarius. So So he invents each day before shooting. He invents the dialogue for that day. They had had the locations picked out beforehand, but he's making up the, the dialogue as they go along. That must have been so weird, especially for Gene Sieber coming from an American film. Oh, I'll tell you her reaction. <laughs> oh, yes. In 23 days, they shoot anywhere between 15 minutes and 12 hours a day based on how inspired he's feeling. Oh, my God. <laughs> Godard, at one point, calls in sick, and then the producer sees him in a cafe, and they got to do a fist fight. <laughs> 
Um, and he said, this is not improvisation. It's decision making at the last minute, which is the most Sagittarius comment you could possibly. I need that on a t-shirt. I need that tattooed into my body. Yes, perfect. <laughs> yes. He, there are people that he has to have on the tech crew just because they're union requirements. He has a make- makeup artist on set, but he won't allow her to do any work. And she's super like, I think it, like she used to like secretly pass me powder puffs. <laughs> <laughs> There there was a script supervisor who normally works on continuity between scenes, and Godard just locked her out of, they locked him or her out of the rooms (laughs) because that was not what Godard wanted. This is such chaos. It is total, like, uh, evil chaos energy. Yes. And the other thing is. So they're shooting in Paris. They don't have permission to shoot in Paris. Of course they so don't. They, there's no crowd control, any of this. At one point... I'm liking this film more and more. Right? <laughs> well, Belmondo's dying. Um, a policeman actually, like an actual policeman, hopped off a bus and was like, are you okay? <laughs> the meta text is stronger sometimes than the text is what we're learning. I actually, uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to tell, tell you about the film that I shot when I was at school uh, <laughs> at a certain point, which has certain parallels with this, it turns out. Um, and this builds into a, a, a broader view that I have about this movie. But anyway, okay. to carry on. Just making notes to see if we can link to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is. It's lost. I, I think the rushes are um, <laughs> somewhere on a VHS at my parents' place. <laughs> It, <laughs> it was called Too Bold, Too Beautiful. In, in August, Seabrook wrote, day by day, the scenario seems to be get, getting bigger and worse in every way. Eventually, because Godard is writing these lines so quickly before shooting, they have no time to memorize them. But they're using a handheld camera that is so noisy and and incapable of synchronized sound. So everything was dubbed in post-production. None of that sound actually came from the camera. So Godard just called out their lines to them, like, right before they'd say it. <laughs> so when everybody's like, Jean Seberg is so, like, you know, inscrutable and whatever, it's like, yeah, she had no idea who this character was, <laughs> what she was saying. She was just repeating shit that Godard was called. This is incredible. This was literally my technique, too, for when I was making Too Bold, Too Beautiful. So. We also got. I, like, all right, I'm just. Uh, we also. I staged a fight scene on top of a car park, <laughs> and um, a guy, like a, a the security guard for the car park, came up to try and chuck us off because he thought we were fighting on the top of the car park. It turns out I'm Goddard. It really. The parallels are getting eerie. <laughs> So, and again, this camera is so noisy that uh, Raoul Coutard, the iconic French cinematographer, said 50 years later, I still have that terrible din in my ears. Do I still have the camera? No, it was a cheap movie. We hired the camera and had to give it back. (laughs) (laughs) It was shot like a documentary uh, with a handheld camera and almost no lighting. Now, obviously, a handheld camera, you can't do a tracking shot Mm -hmm. where you, I'll put a... Rather than describing it, I'll put an example of this in the show notes. So he held the camera and had himself pushed in a wheelchair (laughs) for the tracking shots. Great. Kind of ingenious. (laughs) So they're using film that isn't motion picture film stock at this time. (laughs) They're using the stuff that doesn't fit into the sprockets of the camera. It's a real mess. Godard is thrilled. Of course. In his notes, he writes, Wednesday, we shot a scene in direct sunlight with Java 56. Everyone found it awful. I find it fairly extraordinary. (laughs) It's the first time that one obliges the film stock to give the maximum of itself by making it do that for which it is not made. It is as if it were suffering by being exploited to the outer limits of its possibility. Even the film stock you see will be... Breathless. 
<laughs> wow. I just, that is, it, it, that's the most French thing. <laughs> and with all of this, he, he, he wrote later, I believed I'd made a realistic film and it wasn't that at all. He had uh, permission for a 90-minute film, and he turns in one that is two and a half hours. And at this point, de Beauregard is like, no, thank you, sir. <laughs> you must edit it. And so Jean-Pierre Merville, who's a friend, but also played the interviewed writer and improvised the... I fucking knew I recognized him. Okay. said, I told him to cut everything that didn't keep the action movie, to remove all unnecessary scenes, mine included. He didn't listen to me and instead <laughs> ended up cutting... And instead of cutting whole scenes, as was the practice then, he had the brilliant idea of cutting more or less at random within scenes. As another, <laughs> as another critic said less complimentarily, he basically went at it with scissors. <laughs> Welcome to the editing technique for our podcast as well. Cut, 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 cut. <laughs> that is my refrain. <laughs> we didn't know you took it from Godard, though. Yeah, and so show your references. Exactly. My jump cuts, like his, read as amateurish to those who didn't think it was deliberate. Lack <laughs> <laughs> like pseudo-intellectuals, just borrow phrase. And the thing is at the time, like it does seem very funny because he is just going, oh, why do I need to polish this up for you? Like you can you know what's you know what's happened between these two cuts. There's a gun, there's a dead guy, figure it out. You know, he gives disorienting angles. Beforehand, the lead editor, Cécile de Sugy, and her assistant editor, Lila Herman, women, which is interesting, uh, said that the film had a reputation before its premiere as the worst film of the year. <laughs> but that's not what happened. In the end, this denaturalization flouted all cinematic conventions. The visual jazz goes with the detective film gangster inspiration. Uh, visual jazz is a phrase by Richard Brody, Lincoln Show Notes. Uh, he didn't use the, Godard didn't use the jump cut a lot later. It was really just this film. So it comes out on March 16th, 1960. The budget was 80,000 bucks in US dollars at the time, 400,000 French francs. And the box office is 2.2 million admissions within France alone. So with all of that in mind, I would love to talk about the love story here. So let's discuss Patricia, first of all. Mm. How do we feel about Patricia? I feel a little bit like Aretha Franklin felt about Taylor, Taylor Swift. Lovely gowns. L love, <laughs> lovely gowns. <laughs> yep, is well-dressed. And the idea that she did that cat eye eyeliner on her own is astonishing. And I mean, and, and, to, and to be a little bit less facetious, especially now that I understand the circumstances under which she was trying to create this role, she does, I think she is doing what she is supposed to be doing within the universe of the movie. It is not what I maybe would expect or hope for in a traditional heroine of, of an action movie, but she's kind of important for the the fabric of the movie. Like I can't imagine anyone else but Gene Seberg in that role, which in and of itself I think is a feat and is a testament to her talent. Yeah. I mean, I could, I, you say that I could imagine uh, Anna Karina in the role slightly, like she seems to sort of look kind of similar. I mean, obviously Anna Karina is, was not uh, American, but apart from that looks kind of similar, made up in a similar way. In fact, I think for a long time, I thought Gene Seberg, was <laughs> no definitely Godard has an aesthetic it's clear <laughs> but what I would say and you try and phrase this right but I think that like she is extremely beautiful like really really like stunningly beautiful I think in this in this movie and I think it doesn't necessarily get said enough when talking about 
French movies and French directors and people who have fallen into their orbit, that there is a huge part of their art, which I think is literally finding a very beautiful woman and pointing a camera at her and almost seeing like one of the purposes of cinema to be literally just showing us somebody who is extremely beautiful. Girl in a gun. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. And so I think for that, she does a phenomenal job of just being beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, and Godard's sort of like that, that's sort of like the, the lusting of the camera after her is also is very good. Like you, you do get this. There's a, a chemistry between her and the camera, so to speak. Yeah. Roger Ebert said that it's actually remarkable that reviews in the movie didn't portray her as a monster because she does seem more self-aware and less deluded than Michelle. But uh, I do think it's that beautiful face. And the other thing, too, uh, is that like this is really taking a lot of inspiration from like American noir films and kind of poking fun at them. And those do not characterize women as particularly complex it's true. I will say that in this movie, and I understand that it is part of the larger project, Patricia in particular, her actions appear to me to be purposeless. She has a line where she talks about, well, she has a line. She later on said a line where she says something about how, you know, to denounce uh, people who denounce are the worst. But then, of course, she denounces at the end. But it seems like she was kind of going along with him at the beginning. And, was, and again, I'm, I'm not I, that's not necessarily a critique of this movie, because that is part of what it's critiquing itself. Um, but it does feel like people are just adrift, right? Like, it's a car chase. Eh, whatever, I'll just stay here. The police are coming. Ugh, whatever, let's go to the movies. Something that I find really interesting in a lot of movies is this, and like contemporary blockbusters, is how they have this like simulacrum of emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly a lot of the time about Marvel movies and that like people, obviously that they're really well-crafted scripts in a certain level, but depending on kind of who the camera is fixated on, that's the emotional arc that we're supposed to care about. And, you know, you can have a whole building full of people blown up and killed, but, like, we're more interested in the sort of minutiae of the love story between two central characters. And I think when you sort of pan back from that, you realise the absurdity of motivations in blockbuster movies, and I think that that's what's really coming out here, as I understand it, is it's sort of it, it it's almost showing that with a like not literally with a wider angle lens but like sort of showing how people only really act in movies in order to serve the plot and that real emotions are not supposed to be you know necessarily portrayed that the real emotions are at the mercy of this thing which is the film which is happening and to be fair there is something about that that feels authentic to reality as well. Like we all want to believe, of course, that all of our actions and decisions come from well-reasoned thought. A lot of times we just do shit because we did shit, right? Like it was the thing to do. It was easier. And it's only later on that we try to attach a narrative to it. So, you know, I know I said it was a silly movie, but I do. And I still think that. But I do think that this is a really interesting reflection upon that on both ends. Yeah, agreed. And so with Patricia, like, let's move on and talk a little bit about Michelle and their love story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're very unsure whether they're even in love. They say it, they say they're not. They go back and forth. Their sex looks, they're, they're, the sex scene in the film looks very silly. It looks like <laughs> they're having a pillow fight underneath <laughs> a sheet. <laughs> and then when they're finished, she goes, et voila. <laughs> So do we buy it? 
Do we like the do we like Michelle? Do we like this love story? To me, Belmondo, especially young Belmondo, I will follow his character anywhere. I, I I'm inclined to like him no matter what. You've been hypnotized by his ugliness. <laughs> I take so much offense at that line. He's one of my favorite actors that Godard keeps going back to because I think he really does capture the the capital C cool that is really what you need to be a prime Godard character. Other people, I think, sometimes try to do too much acting. Belmondo understands completely. I'm here to wear this hat, these sunglasses, and smoke a cigarette, and you swoon. And he does it beautifully. So do I buy that he and Patricia are actually in a relationship not really but they look really cool together and they're very hot and I actually think that is the purpose of them I don't believe anything about what they say or do but god they're cool they're pretty well matched in terms of the motivations and levels of their characters and you know just to speak to a point that you made Chris as well about Gene Seberg kind of being almost in a love affair with the camera I think that is what both of them do right the camera loves both of them the camera shows them in their best light at all times and so funnily enough it's almost like the camera's the real person that they're in a relationship with and they're just next to each other. It's a weird proxy threesome. and But the real object of their affection is not the other person. It's themselves and their reflection. Yeah. And, so, and to kind of go back actually to one of the themes that we've talked about before about like whether all you need in a movie is to put two people together and say these two people are together. I think that this movie is playing actually with that idea. Yeah, do we buy it? Well, it, it's almost it's almost pushing us not to buy their relationship every time. And yet, yeah, there's this dissonance because you do buy it because that's the trope of the movie, which is moving forward. That's it. I, I really feel like his primary appeal for her is as a French teacher. He's <laughs> like, what does that word mean? What does that word mean? It's like, come on. Um, yeah, I really think that that point comes through, especially in their two long shots of them kissing. And it's this absolute Hollywood, like, exaggeration of a Hollywood movie kiss mm -hmm. with no tongue, no open mouth. It's just the two of them smooshing their faces together mm -hmm. real hard. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, Hollywood love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is telling me that they are in love. <laughs> Correct. Now, what about how Paris is used, since we know that they had the run of Paris because they didn't ask for any permits? <laughs> if they didn't film something, it wasn't because they couldn't get the permit. They, right. It feels like a Paris that's all set pieces. And I don't say that it actually is a criticism. It feels like even Gene Seberg is the only one who has a job. Sorry, a legal job. Everyone is actually heavily employed. It's just that most of them are going to be arrested or die very soon. Yeah, um, she's the only one who can cash her paycheck. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but even her job, you know, we see the front, we see the window pane, we see her at the press conference. It all really feels like staged. Everything in Paris feels staged. And that's true to a certain extent because as we've talked about before in the podcast, Paris is genuinely so pretty. It is a beautiful city. But in this in this movie, it really does feel like, oh shit, we had to arrange the Eiffel Tower to be over here and maybe over here. And then when they move through it, it doesn't feel that different than if they were in a movie of a movie in, in some ways to me. Something which I think is fascinating about Paris as a city is the way it has been used and transmuted through art a number of times in the same way that when you're a kid, you can play an imaginary game and, you know, suddenly the sofa that you're on turns into a mountain or something like that. And I think Godard, this is particularly true in Alphaville uh, as well, in which he just sort of shoots Paris and you're just supposed to believe that we're somewhere set in the future. And in the same way in this one, he's shooting Paris, which 
weirdly it really looks like it does paris you know like i mean like it's so iconically itself and so you almost you really have to take this leap of this imagination but he's trying to say that paris could be los angeles or could be a kind of like an american you know with these sort of big roads and lots of movements and stuff and you're almost supposed to look at the images and i think it's expecting you to yeah, imagine this very set in stone congealed city to turn into the sort of the expanse and the landscape of cinema, I feel. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think on a lot of levels, I agree with you. I'm not sure that the city could be or like is trying to be read as American. I think it's trying to be read as something that the young characters, particularly Belmondo's character, would like to be American with all the cars and hopping in and out. But it's not an American city. It's more closed, which is why the police are able to pretty easily, you know, if it were Los Angeles, you could get lost so much more easily than if you stay within the confines of the peripherique. And the the thing that's really interesting to me, too, at this point is that we're 1959, 1960, which is such a moment for youth culture in America. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have Elvis and the invention of the teenager and, you know, the drive-in theater and all of this stuff that, you know, Greece references yeah. <laughs> later. And the these characters are young people in a Paris that is not a young person's Paris. We don't see them in, like, you know, the equivalent of like the English cafes at this time, you know, where teddy boys would be having coffees and smoking cigarettes. We don't see them in any nightclubs. We don't see them really with many other young people, although it's really hard for me to gauge the age of characters in this in this film. Well, also in French movies in general, it's real tough of this time period. Everyone looked old. It's like you could be 20 or you could be 50. Absolutely. Nobody knows. Yeah, so that's, I think, a really important point uh, as well in their relationship is that I do think that, well, Michelle's appeal for Patricia is a bit that he's a French tutor. Mm -hmm. Her appeal for him is just that she's American. And he's just he's got this obsession with bogey with American culture. I actually remembered this film as the one where he pops the cigarette, but this isn't it. Mm -hmm. It's not this one. So I'll have to find that reference somewhere else. Final thoughts on Breathless? Yeah, I want to say that I think that if you haven't watched the movie and you watch it and you absolutely fucking hate it this is kind of the problem with Godard's movies in general is that all the reasons why they are worth watching as movies are often antithetical to the reasons why we choose to watch movies right like it's it's like you have to kind of dig deep and go it's pointing out that this part of movies is really fake and this part of movies is artificial and this part so it's it's fun to parse but it's not always the most delightful fun amusing experience to watch them um so don't worry if the new wave is not for you you just really like movies um, and you want to keep that love alive we however have given that up and we want to really get into it with you this was, this was written this movie was made for boomer film critics absolutely that, that was the intended audience that's us <laughs> and we're here to help you through it so i think my overarching feeling is i I completely agree with you naf that it's not necessarily that much fun of a movie to to watch uh it's quite it's good it's actually really good to talk about and there's sort of like loads that you can kind of pare down into it and stuff and it's very intellectual in that way but then also and this is to go back to my own uh movie making experience um which is very brief uh, my brief attempt to become an auteur um (laughs) but i think that what it really reminds me of is a lot of 
like student filmmaking which came about in like the 1980s and 1990s when people started having access to cameras and we were by then really already saturated in in movie culture and I know that um, in the case of Too Bold, Too Beautiful, for example, that was also like, I, I mean, I, I believe the plot it involved a character called Leviathan Smith and um, the MacGuffin was uh, one litre of liquefied Ebola. Uh, and it was it was in itself riffing off, like not in any intellectual way, but like riffing off loads of movies that I'd seen. And I did that without any kind of grand artistic vision, but just because that seemed like it was fun. And that was just the natural dialogue that I think that a lot of people were in at the time. And you can see that I know with a lot of friends of mine and like their love of B movies, which do exactly this kind of thing, um, very similar to what's happening in Breathless. And so I feel that what what it strikes me as is is like the first time that people realize that you know you can really do this like guerrilla filmmaking and you can go out and you can use just the world around you because of like a passion for cinema and yeah and he's obviously loaded it with all of these references but this has come just quite naturally to him or maybe not you know maybe it's come in a kind of like an intellectual he's thought his way through it but I think why it seems dated now to me is because, yes, yeah, I say, I think a whole generation of people went out and have made their own versions of Breathless, which tend, I think, like the sorts of movies that people would like students would have made would have been like schlock, schlocky kind of horror movies. But in the same way, they're still re referencing things in the 1970s, whereas he's going back to more kind of golden age Hollywood. So yeah, that's that's my feeling is like almost the original student movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also a, a, an argument that it's the original, the first kind of nostalgic movie about Hollywood itself. You've got Sunset Boulevard, mm -hmm. but this one is really, you know, you take it to another culture and look at the way that nostalgia and longing for Hollywood has kind of spread and been interpreted in another place. Because Rachel, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but also the these directors were kind of the first to embrace a lot of American film directors, right, in France. Even the ones that, so like uh, directors like Hitchcock, who of course now are so famous and important, it was really the French who first gave them their first really great reviews. We're like, no, no, these people are auteurs. And so I think also... Well, the director wasn't considered important exactly. by the public, at least in America at the so time. At the time, this would have been so daring, right? And inventive. And it wouldn't... It's it Again, it, it's funny that it feels so dated because it was so, so outside of the norm at that time. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing because it's like you're at a place where the main character is inspired by like Bogart... 20, 25 years earlier, you know, so you get, yeah, cinema's nostalgia for itself. Mm -hmm. And this sense, as you were saying, of, um, <laughs> of the thing that you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a jump cut there. It'd be great. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think they also had a real influence on revalorizing genre films mm. because the Hitchcock as well would have been considered a genre director. Right. People like Houston, who directed, I think, Maltese Falcon, mm. you know, early directors of noir, things like that, really had been considered, you know, not as serious as somebody making, say, you know, Ben-Hur or right. things like that. Interesting thing I wonder that might you could argue is being a little bit paralleled in literature today in which I think that 
in contemporary literature, I think people are now kind of like moving beyond the traditional idea of like literary fiction right now and suggesting that genre fiction can now come into the fold. Uh, which is something that seemed to happen with movies a long time ago. And now people are looking at, you know, writers like Stephen King or Neil Gaiman and people like that and saying that these are actually genuine literature, which was probably not the case like 20 years ago, for example. And that's an interesting thing to say. I don't know why movies would have been so ahead of the curb on this thing, but... Let me, let me pop in on that. The, as the seventh art... No, kill me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Cinema, and particularly Hollywood cinema, has always been asking itself what it is. Because you were inventing an art form that wasn't considered an art form by many. It was considered a commercial practice for decades. And, you know, still by some is questioned as an art form. And so it has to constantly justify, define, promote itself, whereas literature has a much longer history and didn't come about in the 20th century, where technology made uh, advances so much quicker and easier, and directors had to figure out what that meant for the art that they wanted to make. So I'll wrap up with an appropriately pretentious quote, again, by the wonderful Dudley Andrew, who said that making this film it took the pretentiousness of youth. <laughs> and it's true. You really can't see anybody over the age of 30 <laughs> producing, making, acting in this film. <laughs> and now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. As the leader of this week's discussion on the love story, it was my turn to come up with Mary Fuck Kill. And man, did I have choices. Things I considered and ultimately threw away were the expression, ooh la la, which appears <laughs> at least four times throughout this film and would make a good drinking game. That would make that would be my Mary and Fuck. I wouldn't be able to let that go. There's Chris's student film, Too Bold, Too Beautiful. <laughs> which, by the way, I definitely heard at first as Too Bold comma too beautiful so did i yeah <laughs> okay good <laughs> half the time we don't understand chris <laughs> but i have ended up with here are your entities the jump cut the cahier du cinema and the new york herald tribune okay why yay Ooh, this is tricky this is very tricky but very good <laughs> When I came to Paris, it was to do an internship at the International Herald Tribune. You were Gene Seberg. I was Gene Seberg. Yes, they had me out. Oh. He looks so cute in that dress. Oh my god! We'll we'll post it in the show notes. <laughs> I was wearing a tight-fitting white top, which said New York Herald Tribune, uh, which will soon be available on our merch link in show notes. <laughs> which is to say, I have a real fond relationship with the Herald Tribune because it, it it was effectively what took me to Paris and I was there sort of like quite in, in a sad way kind of like when it was really winding down and a lot of people who had worked there for years from back when it used to be the actual New York Herald Tribune were retiring at that stage and so there was a huge amount of nostalgia for what it was also just floating around the office um, and so I got to hear a load of great stories and when we went to all of these retirement parties people would sing this old printer's song for the kind of printer's union and you'd have all these sort of sonorous French voices singing as someone walked out the door for the last time so that was lovely and also stories about 
one of my favourite things was about how people used to, when you'd um, be writing your story for the day, the building used to be in the same place as where the actual printing presses were. And they used to say you would, you'd know that you would get be getting closer to deadline because the smell of the ink being heated would start rising up through the building. Um, yeah. So lots of... <laughs> Love that for them. <laughs> Go off. Um, and so for my own sense of nostalgia, I think I'm going to be uh, marrying the uh, the New York Herald Tribune. The, the jump cut doesn't sound like it would be a great lay. <laughs> it feels like it would be bumpy. <laughs> um, I, you know, and I, I appreciate it. That you know, it has a certain kind of intellectual quality in this movie, but nevertheless, I think that's going to be killed. And so, all of a sudden, I found myself in bed with the Cahiers de Cinema. I've never read the Cahiers de Cinema. Um, it, I really, you know, I'm a huge Eric Reimer fan. I don't know if that means I necessarily want to sleep with him, but I guess because I'm marrying the Herald Tribune and killing the Jump Cut because I'm suspicious of its skills as a lover, um, I'm going to just take a punt on the Cahiers de Cinema. So that's my answer. <laughs> So I will be marrying the jump cut because I think I think marriages can be long and boring. And I think it could be kind of nice to be married to an entity that will just kind of skip past some of the boring moments. And let's see, we're having a fight. And like, oh, oh, no, now we're in a pool. Oh, now we're in Los Angeles. Ah! <laughs> I just I feel like what better way to ensure a marriage that will never sink into the doldrums of predictability. Right. You never know what you're going to get with the jump cut. And also NAF cut. It's kind of a cool name for me. Naf Jumpka. You know what I mean? Like I just I kind of see I see us becoming a brand. I see us becoming, you know, we go to a party and then we show five years later and we're dressed in like Hawaiian costumes and we're like, yeah, we we're we're I don't know. You can also hyphenate Nafkate Tamarat hyphen cut. Yes. So it's perfect for me. I'm one hundred percent gonna fuck the Kaido cinema. I have a real weakness for for people who if they're not smarter than me, sound like they are, and I can take their smartest statements and go to, you know, parties, other events, and repeat them, and then take on the mantle of intelligence. I think I would just learn a lot about cinema. I think we'd watch really great movies. And yeah, I think sometimes we'd it'd be annoying and boring, but then I'd go back to my jump cut and then I'd go back back into, you know, surprising loops and whatever, la di da. And I'm so sorry, Chris. I don't mean this to be an insult. I'm some person gonna kill the New York Herald Tribune just because I had to. I, I'm not even that mad at it, but I just between the Cahiers de Cinema and NYH, I choose Cahiers. So I end up on the same page as Chris, but for different reasons. Oops. I'm gonna marry the New York Herald Tribune so that we can revive the idea that Americans, expats, anglophones from around the world can come to Paris, get a job as a journalist working for two hours a day, and then just uh, go home and drink and fuck the rest of the time. So <laughs> you are you are now my employees. Welcome to your new lives. Yay. Do you know something interesting about the New York Herald Tribune is that for a long period of its life, it was effectively just a Paris-based newspaper. I mean, I know it was obviously based in Paris, but it, was, it wasn't distributed widely or anything like that. It was literally just a uh, an English language newspaper which happened to be based in Paris and it was called the New York Herald Tribune because I think it was set up by the New York Herald Tribune but yeah so it was a real local newspaper which then rebranded as this international English language which newspaper. makes it even more perfect for this film because it's like Americanism in through the eyes of French people <laughs> <laughs> I will 
Fuck the Calle de Cinema, also a little bit by default. Calle de Cinema is getting a lot of action from us this week. But also, like I did, I have read through some of them. They are a lot more fun. And you can tell that it's just like cool slash nerdy guys in their 20s just being like, listen to my ideas on film, you guys. And it's like, yeah, I I, I really, I enjoy this. I, this is an energy that I loved in people in my 20s. And I will take it to bed, clearly, as I... <laughs> Kai's to cinema might as well be what I call the list of my former lovers. <laughs> um, and the jump cut I'm going to kill, not because I hate it, but because if it doesn't exist, I can't get criticized for the jump cuts in our edits anymore. So you can't criticize me because that's not a thing. It's dead. <laughs> And that's why. So, too bold, too beautiful, gets left alone. <laughs> Ooh la la remains a great drinking game. And Calle du Cinema is getting some tonight. Hey, <laughs>